please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Our sermon text this morning is Colossians 4, 7 to 18. Let me read that passage for us. Starting in verse 7, Paul writes this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, Christianity is not like Pilates. Christianity is not like Pilates. If you don't know what Pilates is, it's kind of like yoga, but it focuses more on strength than on flexibility. Here's what I mean. If you prefer, you can do Pilates alone. If you know how to do Pilates exercises, all you really need is an exercise mat and some free time. Even if you don't know how to do Pilates, you can download an app on your phone, I'm told, that will lead you through a variety of Pilates routines. And you, by yourself, in your home, wherever you are, will have all that you need to do Pilates. The whole purpose of Pilates, at least as it's practiced in the West today, is your own personal wellness. It's true, you might decide to join a Pilates class to do Pilates with other people, and you might even find the accountability and the expertise or the friendship of other Pilates practitioners to be helpful. You might even find Pilates to be helpful to build community and to strengthen relationships that you enjoy. But none of those things are essential to doing Pilates. Because the point is you doing exercises for the sake of your personal wellness. Other people might be helpful, but they're not essential. Pilates doesn't necessarily involve you in a community striving for a common goal that's bigger than itself. 
I think that in our culture today, uh, many of us are tempted to view Christianity as something basically similar to Pilates. You see, we think that if we prefer, we could do Christianity alone. If I'm saved, if I have my Bible, and I know how to study the Bible and how to pray, if I know what kind of heart attitudes God wants me to have and what kind of sins I'm supposed to avoid, then I'm, think, I'm, I'm tempted to think that basically I can do Christianity alone. And now many of us, particularly those here today in church, praise the Lord, we're in church, many of us would recognize that trying to do Christianity alone is really hard. And we might even say that it's a bad idea, right? Many of us recognize that we all need help and accountability and encouragement and instruction, and even that we need to turn outward and love other people if we are to remain spiritually healthy. But it's very important to see that unlike Pilates, Christianity necessarily embeds you in a community that's called to strive together for a goal that's bigger than each individual. Do you see the difference? It's not just that each individual Christian needs help to do Christianity well. It's that God's purpose for his church is bigger than just a bunch of individual persons finding wellness or salvation. Now, what we see in our passage from Colossians this morning is that Christianity, and more specifically, the gospel of Christ, is intended to produce a family on mission together. That, I think, is why this passage, these greetings from first century people that none of us have ever met, that's why I think this passage has made it into the Bible. Because in the relationships that stand behind the greetings in these verses, we are meant to see a boots-on-the-ground example of how the gospel produces a family on mission together. So here is, Lord permitting, our outline for this morning. First, very briefly, let's see the structure of the passage. First point, the structure of the passage. Second, let's spend some time getting to know the people of the passage. Point number two, the people of the passage. And third and finally, uh, we'll look at the family on mission together. Third and finally, the family on mission together. So first, very briefly, what is the structure of this passage? Well, Colossians 4, 7 to 18 divides pretty cleanly into four sections. So here's what Paul says uh, in some in these sections. First, he says, here's who I'm sending you. And then he says, those with me greet you. And then he says, greet those near you. And then finally, he gives his signature and his blessing. Let me unpack that real briefly. First section, verses 7 to 9. Paul says, here's who I'm sending you. Paul tells the Colossians in verses 7 to 9 about Tychicus, whose name is very cool, and Onesimus, who are probably the people that originally delivered these letters to the church in Colossae. Tychicus is probably carrying the letter to the Colossians, and Onesimus is probably carrying the letter that our sister Ashley read earlier, uh, the book of Philemon. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see more in a moment who these people are and why Paul has sent them with these letters. 
Uh, Paul specifically tells them that, hey, when Tychicus and Onesimus get there, they can fill you in on what's been going on uh, with me and those with me. So that's the first section. Here's who I'm sending. Second section, verses 10 to 14, Paul says, those with me greet you, right? The main thing going on here, verses 10 to 14, is that Paul's passing on greetings to the Colossians from his co-workers. We know that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to the Colossians. Probably he was either in Ephesus or in Rome. We're not sure. And some of Paul's co-workers, at least one of them, was also in prison with Paul. And they wanted uh, to send their greetings along with Paul's letters to the Colossians. Hence the sermon title, Aristarchus says, hey. A third section there, verses 15 to 17, Paul says to greet those near you. So Paul tells the Colossians to greet and encourage other Christians geographically close to them in the nearby town of Laodicea, specifically. Uh, Paul wants the Colossians specifically to encourage a man named Archippus, uh, who seems to have been a minister either probably in Colossae or Laodicea or maybe Hierapolis, which also wasn't too far away. Uh, So first, Paul says, here's who I'm sending you. Uh, Those with me greet you. Greet those near you. And then finally, Paul signs out with his signature and with a blessing. It seems like Paul would have dictated this letter, and in verse 18, he grabs the pen from the person to whom he's been dictating, possibly Timothy, uh, and then he says, I, Paul, write this greeting, probably just that sentence, uh, with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. There you have it, the structure of the passage. Uh, So who are all these people giving and receiving greetings back and forth? What's up with this cast of characters? It's our second point, the people of the passage. Uh, Many of these individuals are mentioned either in the book of Acts or in one of Paul's other letters, especially in the book of Philemon, which we've mentioned. Twelve characters we need to meet. We'll go briefly. Some will take longer than others. Twelve characters in these verses that we need to meet. The Lord thought this was worth including in Colossians. First person to meet, Tychicus. Tychicus there in verses 7 to 8. Look again at 7 to 8. Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And we know from the book of Acts that Tychicus was from the Roman province of Asia, uh, which is roughly equivalent to modern Turkey. Tychicus traveled with the Apostle Paul on parts of his missionary journeys. Paul, you can see, calls him a fellow servant in the Lord. It's important to remember that many of the Christians in Colossae, they never actually met Paul, although it seems certain that they'd heard of his apostolic ministry and of his divinely given right to teach the Lord Jesus' message. So it's helpful that in this letter, signed by the Apostle Paul, that Paul commends Tychicus as an authorized representative of Paul, uh, to correctly and accurately fill them in on how things had gone, gone with Paul, because he calls Tychicus a beloved brother and a faithful minister. So the church in Colossae would be inclined, because of Paul, because he's an apostle, to trust Tychicus. And that relates to what we need to see about the second person in this passage, which is Onesimus. First Tychicus, second Onesimus, there in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul says, And with him, with with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. 
They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Again, Onesimus' story is told in the letter to Philemon, which Ashley read. One of the members of the church in Colossae was a man named Philemon. Seems that Philemon had owned a bondservant named Onesimus. Paul calls him one of you. And it seems clear from Paul's letter that Onesimus was not a Christian prior to his meeting the Apostle Paul. In fact, from what we gather, it seems like Onesimus had fled from his master, Philemon. And in his flight, again, probably either in Ephesus or in Rome, who does Onesimus meet but Paul? God's in control, right? As we heard in Philemon, God saves Onesimus through Paul's gospel witness. And now Paul sends Onesimus, this former pagan runaway slave, to be received. How? Verse 9 as our faithful and beloved brother. What a picture of how the gospel transforms our relationships. Moved from slave to beloved brother. Those are the first two people we need to meet. Third, fourth, and fifth people we need to meet are Paul's Jewish co-workers. Very quickly, we read there about them in verses 10 and 11. Let's look there. Paul writes, There in verse 10, Aristarchus, that's number three, my fellow prisoner greets you. And Mark, number four, the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas doesn't count. He's not there. Concerning whom, speaking of Mark, you have received instructions. If he comes to you, speaking of Mark, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. This is not the Lord Jesus Christ. This is another man. Number five, Jesus Justice. There, Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. A brief word on these three men. Aristarchus, uh, we know that Aristarchus was from Macedonia. We know from Acts that he joined Paul on some of his travels. Uh, Aristarchus was with Paul in Ephesus when the riot broke out over Paul's preaching. Remember, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Everyone shouted for hours. These angry mob actually dragged Aristarchus into the theater uh, and at least shouted at him if they didn't hurt him. Uh, But Aristarchus kept traveling with Paul, riot notwithstanding. Get this, at the end of Acts, when Paul gets on a boat to go to Rome, the boat that gets shipwrecked and he gets snake bitten and there's a long storm and they all almost die. Get this, Aristarchus volunteers to join Paul the prisoner on that boat after suffering a riot and probably injury for his partnership with Paul. That's some serious commitment there. Aristarchus is in prison with Paul, as you can tell from verse 10. Imagine how encouraging it would be for the Colossians to hear that Aristarchus greets them, this stalwart in the faith. He acknowledges them intentionally. Number four is Mark. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You may know, traveled extensively with Paul. Mark is probably the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. You may remember that Paul and Barnabas actually split up in the book of Acts chapter 15 because Mark, again Barnabas' cousin, he had previously traveled with Paul and Barnabas, but he had bailed when the going got really rough. And then on an additional missionary journey, Paul didn't want to bring Mark because he had jumped ship. But Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance. Well, a dispute between Paul and Barnabas over Mark led to the two of them splitting up. Mark had let Paul down, 
And initially, he didn't want to trust him again. And so it's really noteworthy that here, Paul clearly and publicly approves of Mark. He says specifically, Mark is my fellow worker, and he's been a comfort to me. Just time out, brief application here. You see, Mark had disappointed Paul in the past. But notice that Mark's past shortcomings don't define him in Paul's eyes. Paul goes out of his way to publicly approve of Mark. As saints, are there any Christians in your life whom you define in terms of a past disappointment or a past injury that they've done to you? Are there any Christians whom you see fundamentally through the lens of their past failure, especially if it hurt you? Are there other Christians about whom you can't speak a good word publicly, even if just to be kind? Christian, that's not how Jesus has treated you in your failures. That's not how Paul treats Mark, and that's not how we're to treat one another. We're called to extend the grace of Christ to one another, notwithstanding our failures. Number four is Mark. Number five is Jesus called justice. We know nothing about him. On to six, seven, and eight. Here we think our Paul's, I'm serious, we, we don't know anything. Uh, these are Paul's, we believe, Gentile co-workers. There's a question, actually, about how to translate verse 11 and whether verse 11 means that the people after that list are Gentiles, but it, it seems like they are. So we, we think that these are Paul's Gentile co-workers, at least some scholars think that. I, at the moment, that's, that's persuasive to me. So it's noteworthy that there are Jews and Gentiles working happily together on Paul's missionary team. Number six, Epaphras. Epaphras is important. Praise God for Epaphras. Epaphras is the reason, remember, that the book of Colossians exists. Look back at Colossians chapter one, chapter one, verses seven and eight. And Paul here is speaking about the spread of the gospel. And he says there in verse seven, he says, just as you, you believers in Colossae, learned it, learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Right? Why are there Christians in Colossae? Well, it's because Epaphras, whose hometown was Colossae, was converted through the gospel probably through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And after Epaphras was converted, he went back to his hometown and he told those he knew and loved about Jesus, about his death for sin, about his resurrection, about the hope of eternal life for all who trust in him. And God saved a church full of sinners in Colossae through Epaphras' witness. If Colossians and Ephesians were written at the same time, which I, I think they were, then Epaphras is currently in prison with Paul and with Aristarchus. And what's Epaphras busy doing? Look there at Colossians 4.12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, 
always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Brothers and sisters, if you can pray, then hard and fruitful gospel work is not out of reach for you. May God raise up among us those like Epaphras who toil in prayer for the good of his people. Number six, Epaphras. Number seven, Luke. There in verse 14, he's called the beloved physician. So much we could say about Luke. I'll be very brief. Church tradition has it that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He also traveled extensively with Paul. If that tradition is accurate, then Luke was a highly educated historian, theologian, doctor, missionary, which makes him really cool. Praise God for those who use their technical expertise for the good of God's image bearers and in the service of his church. Number eight. Number eight is Demas. Demas was a worker alongside Paul. He sends his greetings both in Colossians and in Philemon. Uh, Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy, in that letter we read these sobering words. And Paul says this to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Once a faithful gospel partner of Paul's, quit the job in love for this present world, unwilling to suffer with Paul. Brothers and sisters, Demas' share in this present world came quickly to a close. He's no longer alive. Friends, our share in this present world is coming quickly to a close. Friends, like it did for Paul, for Epaphras, for Aristarchus, for Demas, following Jesus will mean suffering. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is better than this present world. It is passing away, but one day Jesus Christ will be revealed in glory, and those who are his will be glorified with him forever and ever. Saints, hold on to Jesus Christ. Do not leave him in love for this present world. 7, 8, and 9, Epaphras, Demas, and Luke. Uh, number 10, character 10, is actually a whole church. There in verse 15, Paul sends his greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Look at verses 15 and 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha. We, character 11 there, number Nympha. We, we don't know anything else about Nympha. And the church in her house. That's all we know. Nympha had a church in her house. Continuing on, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
Many Bible scholars believe that the letter from Laodicea is actually the letter that we know as Ephesians. If you want to nerd out about that later, I'd be happy to talk to you. We think that the letter to the Laodiceans is actually one that they got from Ephesus, the letter uh, that we know as Ephesians. Uh, Do you just notice for a moment, what's the link that binds together the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea? Is it that they're part of the same presbytery. I I say that with deep, deep, deep respect for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. It it doesn't seem to be. Is it that they share elders? No, they, they don't seem to. What binds the two together is that they are both under the authority of the Scriptures, the letters of the apostles that bind both churches as they retain authority independently in terms of their polity. It seems like Paul sees the church at Colossae and the church of Laodicea as independent partners, both under the authority of the apostles' teaching, but more than happy to work together for the progress of the gospel. Character number 12 there is Archippus. Archippus. Archippus appears to have been a member of Philemon's household. He gets greeted at the beginning of the letter to Philemon. He appears to have been some kind of gospel minister, Paul calls him a fellow soldier. We don't know anything about Archippus' specific situation, but it's very clear from verse 17 that Paul believed that Archippus was in need of firm and direct encouragement. Right there in verse 17, he says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. There you have it. Those are the characters of the passage. I realize that's a ton of details to take in, but saints, do you you realize that this passage dignifies the details of our ordinary Christian lives? Right? Paul's letter to the Colossians is full of exalted theology. Colossians gives us a peerless portrait of the preeminent Christ and of the full and complete salvation that God has accomplished through Christ. But God didn't consider the letter to the Colossians to be complete without mention of the ordinary Christians to whom that theology pertains. Right? Colossians closes with the greetings, right? with the relationships, with the partnerships between people whom Christ has reconciled to God and to one another. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see how the gospel has transformed the people in this passage into a family on mission together. That's our third point, the family on mission together. And brothers and sisters, as we see what the gospel has produced in these relationships in the text, I think the Lord's intent is that we should aspire that these things would characterize our relationships as well. And we should desire and pursue that through the gospel, we too increasingly may be truly described as a family on mission from the Lord Jesus together. So how do we see in this passage that the gospel produces a family? Well, what does Paul call Tychicus, the very first person in the passage? There in verse 7, he says, he is a beloved brother. Beloved brother. 
What about Onesimus? Remember the, the former pagan slave? He's also become, Paul says, our faithful and beloved brother. What about those people who believe the same thing as us over in Laodicea? No, no, no. They're the brothers at Laodicea. Right, saints, we, we gloss over this because we're so familiar with it, right? That's just Bible speak, you know, brothers, they just said that. Right? This language is not just a nice metaphor, right? Christians don't call each other brother and sister just because we have a, a sense of camaraderie, because we like each other. Saints, we are brothers and sisters to each other because we've been adopted into the same family, by Jesus, right? Mark, the Jew, and Luke, probably the Gentile, they were brothers. They had the same father. They received spiritual life from the same source. They had the same spiritual DNA, that of the risen Lord Jesus, right? Christians aren't just called to act like family so things run smoothly in the church, Right? They are a family because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have been irreversibly bonded together into the same tribe by Jesus, the tribe of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, saints, we are family. We are the family of God, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does the familial life of these believers surface in this passage? What does it look like? Well, first, I, th I think it looks like the genuine care that these believers have for one another. That's the, the action that their family life results in, genuine care for one another. We see that genuine care in a variety of ways. Uh, in, in this passage, the genuine care of these believers for one another is expressed in a desire to know how others are doing. The familial, genuine care of God's people in this passage is expressed in a genuine desire to know how others are doing, right? Colossians, the letter, exists because Epaphras came and told Paul all about this church in Colossae, the reception of the gospel. And Paul said, cool, not my ministry, right? Great for you, but that's fine, right? Props to y'all in Colossae best wishes. No, Paul said, praise God. He says, Timothy and I always thank God in our prayers because of our brothers and sisters in Colossae who share the same hope as we do. And Paul wrote them an intricate and careful letter for their good, right? And, and just as he had learned how they were, and he, he wrote in chapter 2 that he rejoiced to see the firmness of their faith and their good order in Christ— he wanted them to know how he was because he was the appointed messenger of the gospel. He, he assumed that the Colossians' Christian maturity would mean that they cared how things were with Paul, that they wanted to know how things were going with him. There in verse 8, speaking of Tychicus, Paul says, I've sent him to you, why? For this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So saints, do you care to know how your brothers and sisters are doing? Do you care to ask brothers and sisters in Christ how they are doing? 
when they tell you, do you care enough to listen to what they're saying? Do you care to do the hard work of building the kind of relationship where you can actually talk about how you're doing? Do you care about your brothers and sisters enough to be humbly transparent yourself? Or does your pride keep you from sharing what's actually going on with you? Right? This passage challenges us to care for one another, to be a family that cares how its members are doing by wanting to know what's up with them. And specifically in this passage, can you see that this, this passage challenges us as a church to care about brothers and sisters in other churches, to care about Christians whom we've never met, whom we might not ever meet, because God cares and because His global purposes for His glory are important to us. Friends, what a litmus test for whether the purposes of God matter to us. Do we care about believers whose lives are not directly connected to us, whose well-being doesn't really directly benefit us, right? Do the spiritual health and clarity of the gospel witness of any other church, does that, does that matter? Or is the sum total of my Christianity consumed with things directly related to me? Saints, I, I can be that way. The genuine care of Christ's family cares to know how others are. It desires their welfare. The genuine care of Christ's family is also manifest in faithful prayer. Look there again at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Brothers and sisters, it's right that we pray for one another, that we stand fully assured in all the will of God, that we understand God's gospel purposes for us and for his world. It's right that we spend time on Sundays praying for other churches, not just to fill time during the pastoral prayer slot because there are expectations, but because God's purpose to glorify himself in the health of churches all over the world ought to matter to us. Jesus calls us to genuine familial care for our brothers and sisters. We can't know and pray about everyone with the same level of knowledge and, and specificity, but the point seems to be to turn outward, just as God has turned toward us when we didn't have anything to offer him, to turn toward others in kindness and care and a genuine desire to know and in prayer. Because the gospel creates a family characterized by genuine care. That care is also manifest in hospitality. Hospitality, what do we know about our first century sister, Nympha? Well, basically nothing other than that she had a house and she opened that house to the church. Praise God for Nympha. Saints, I'm so encouraged when I see you opening your homes for one another, praise God for the hospitality that goes on at Franconia Baptist Church. What a manifestation of the familial, genuine care that the gospel produces when Christians have other Christians into their homes for fellowship. The genuine care of God's people is manifest in hospitality. It's also manifest in the simple act of kind greetings. Right? That's really the main thing going on in the passage. People are greeting one another. 
through letter, right? That's a really small but significant way to communicate kindness and to affirm someone else's value in your eyes. So I'm not certain whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert, but when I get tired, I definitely trend introverted. And the last thing that I want to do is say hello to people, right? Because one, it doesn't feel like it does much. And two, I just want to go be selfish alone, right? Saints, greeting one another kindly is an act of love that builds up the body. I understand you, you can't greet everyone in a church building this size on a Sunday. I've just now made peace with the fact that some people will walk out that back door while I'm talking to someone else, and I cannot greet everyone. But saints, use Sunday mornings to greet one another, to communicate, hey, I see you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord Jesus loves you. Right? I, I greet you. I acknowledge you. Saints, let's be intentional in greeting one another with, our, with the kindness of Christ. May our greetings be a manifestation of the genuine care appropriate to the family created by the gospel. I, I'm not saying we all have to become extroverts, right? Some of, this will, some of us will do this so naturally and warmly. But, but let's exercise care for one another and how we greet each other. The gospel creates a family characterized by genuine care, but it creates more than just a family that turns in and cares for its members. Uh, it creates a family on mission together. Right? That's, that's why Paul and Aristarchus and Epaphras are in prison. Not just because they love each other, but because of their commitment to the family mission. Right? The mission to make the saving gospel of Jesus known to all nations and to build up God's churches that's why Paul has in this passage immediately prior just asked for continued prayer for his ministry. That's why in this passage he describes people not only as beloved brother, but he uses words like faithful minister, verse 7, fellow servant, verse 7, fellow prisoner, verse 10, fellow workers for the kingdom of God, verse 11, servant of Christ Jesus, verse 12. That's, that's why it's appropriate for Paul to write pointed, personalized encouragement to his fellow gospel minister, Aristarchus, right? See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. He doesn't just want to make sure that, that his brother is feeling okay, right? As important as that is, that's very important. Paul also wants to urge his teammate, his colleague to fulfill what God has called him to do because they're on mission from the Lord Jesus together. And that's why Paul calls the churches to make the reading of the scriptures, his letters, central in their life together. Each member ought to be concerned that the body be nourished by God's word. Uh, the church is a family on mission from Jesus to make his saving gospel known and to glorify him in the way that we live life individually and corporately in the way that we engage with the world as representatives of Christ, as those who reflect his good image in the way that we love our neighbors. So church, is this, is this how we think about ourselves? Right? Do, do we see the church not just as a social club, in fact, not as a social club, not just as a support group for individual Christian wellness, but as a team commissioned by Jesus 
to further his mission in the world. A team commissioned not only to care for one another, but also to represent Christ in the way we live and to make his gospel known. Saints, I, I think that's how we do see ourselves. Praise God. That's why it's wonderful that some of our members sponsored uh, two nights ago a table at Assist Pregnancy Center's annual banquet uh, to support an organization that provides pregnant moms with practical help and steers them away from abortion and shares the gospel of Christ with them. Uh, that's why, like Luke the physician, it's wonderful that many of you serve in honest vocations that promote human flourishing to the glory of God. That's why it's so encouraging that many of you are asking for prayer about opportunities to share the gospel with others. And that's why it glorifies God that in many different ways, many of you are pouring yourselves into the discipleship, not only of your own kids, but of other people's kids so that they can know Jesus and represent him intelligently in the world. And that's why we as a church give a portion of our budget to support Chankaya Baptist Church in Ankara, Turkey, where the Johnsons live. That's why we've kept Kyle Sweetland in the directory, so that even though he's not with us anymore, we might pray for him, that the purposes of Jesus might be furthered in Turkey through him. Right, through the gospel, we've been made into a family on mission from Jesus to reflect God's holy and loving image, and to hold out the gospel. And Paul's final words to the Colossians are these. He says, grace be with you. That's not a throwaway line. That's not just a Bible-speak way to end a letter. Right? These words speak of Paul's desire that the kindness, that the undeserved favor of God rest on the Colossians through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, first let me say how welcome you are. We are delighted that you have joined us this morning. Let us just be very candid. This is what we want to be true of you. We want the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ to be yours the undeserved favor of God to be yours. See, the message of the book of Colossians and really of the Bible is that all of us by nature and by choice are estranged from the family of God. And left to ourselves, we are dead set against the mission of God and on mission to be God in our own way, in our own realm. We've not lived as God's respectful children, not as his devoted servants, but as his enemies enemies of the God who gave us life. And so we've earned not God's favor, but his displeasure, his just punishment. But in marvelous grace, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived and to die as a substitute under God's wrath on the cross. Jesus died to pay, the sin, to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him, and three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And God offers to graciously receive and forgive and adopt all who will come to him through faith in Christ. Friend, if you will cease and desist from prioritizing your mission over God's, if you will come to Jesus for forgiveness, he will receive you into his family. 
In a few moments, Lord permitting, we have the joy of hearing the testimony uh, of one of our sisters who by God's grace has done just that, who has been received by God's grace into his family. Saints, let me pray that this time would be an encouragement for us uh, to live as God's family on mission, uh, to proclaim his grace in Christ for his glory. Let me pray as we close. Father, thank you for this letter from Paul to the Colossians. Lord, thank you for Lord, this series of greetings, Lord, that shows us what kind of community your gospel produces and ought to produce. Lord, would we uh, understand ourselves to be uh, the family of Jesus Christ, saved by grace and commissioned together to serve your purposes, to make your gospel known, to glorify you in the way that we love one another and love our neighbor and make Jesus' name known. Lord, we, we pray now that as our sister Mi Young comes to share her testimony, that you would glorify your name through her words. Lord, would we be built up and encouraged as she speaks of your grace toward her. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.